This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to talk today on imagination and contemplation. And I have six main headings. And I'll mention the headings as I go along so you know where you are in terms of the lecture. I'm going to start by thinking about what imagination means and what contemplation means separately, since neither is a simple or straightforward notion in the history of the West. If we start with the word imagination, we probably should begin uh, with Aristotle in his Dianema, where he says influentially that the imagination is somewhere between perception and cognition. And this turns out to be an enormously um, influential remark. And it generates an obvious question, namely, does the capacity, the human capacity to make images improve or impede cognition? Now, if we fast forward a long way into the 18th century, for David Hume and for other British empiricists, the capacity to form images that are not derived from sensation is utterly blind. That's to say that we can be misled in our cognition precisely by images. This is not a view restricted to empiricists, but it's argued most forcefully by them. But there is another view, namely that images that are not derived from sensation are essential, that, sorry, the images that are derived from sensation are essential within limits. That's to say, they can be abstracted by reason to form concepts. And where would we be in our cognition without concepts? So Aristotle's initial view generates two at least contrary, if not quite contradictory, views in the history of philosophy. And it's worthwhile pausing for a moment in the 18th century, a bit later on after Hume, to see how this becomes um, a theme. For Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, it's important to distinguish two sorts of imagination. There's the reproductive imagination, that's to say our human capacity to overcome the partial nature of our experience, when we look at anything in our three-dimensional world, we see only some profiles of objects. We don't see everything. So we have to use what Kant calls the reproductive imagination to fill in what otherwise could be determined empirically. So reproductive imagination is empirical. And we use it each and every day of our lives. We use it pretty much each Good. and every hour of our lives. His advance was rather in proposing what he called the productive imagination. The productive imagination is what gives us new concepts and new rules to experience. It's not empirical. It's what he calls transcendental. That's to say it precedes any and all experience that we have. To give you an example of this, um, we might say 
that the plays and poems of William Shakespeare supply us with an idea of what it is to be human in the West. Obviously, there were humans before Shakespeare, and there were great playwrights before Shakespeare, Aeschylus and Euripides among them. But when we think of how we now, in the 21st century, respond to being human, it's often in terms of comparisons with Shakespearean characters. So we're given a whole world by Shakespeare, freely given in terms of new concepts and new rules of how to behave, which we understand by way of uh, characters in Shakespeare. And as soon as we start to think of certain events being um, Dickensian, for example, we're using literature as a way of seeing a productive imagination determining a world in which we live. So the productive imagination doesn't give us phenomena that we simply are unable to conceive. It gives us phenomena, but it deepens and extends those phenomena. Now, Kant's notion of the productive imagination is largely responsible for producing the literary period we call Romanticism. And debate about its limits and its, um, uh, and its virtues generates what we call literary modernism, and indeed the arguments with modernism determine what we call postmodernism. So the Kantian moment in terms of the history of the imagination is immense. Um, the main figure, I suppose, after Kant with respect to this is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That's the first part I want to say. The second part is I want to say something about this word contemplation. Um, it comes, it's a, it's a Latin translation of a, of a Greek word, but when it enters Latin, uh, it means, it refers to the Roman templum. The templum was a rectangle that was drawn by augurs in the north part of the forum in Rome. And it was drawn on particular occasions to see whether there were good auspices for Roman battles, invasions, and also for spring and autumn crops. What determined the auspices was if one looked up into the sky and saw certain birds flying through the templum in particular directions. Jupiter's bird, the eagle, was always a good auspice for good crops or whether Rome should have a military campaign and fight the, Carthian, the Carthaginians or the Parthians or whomever it was. So this is the origin of our word contemplation, looking up into the sky to gain auspices. It's this idea of natural contemplation that was taken up by Cicero. In fact, it's Cicero who coins the word contemplatio. What Cicero admired in this, he was a member of the College of Augurs, although he didn't believe in divination, is the value of freedom, the freedom of the person to observe or behold. And in order to observe or behold properly, he thought one should engage in a certain retirement from the city. One should retire from business and have leisure to study and think and look around. So this is the origin of contemplation in the West, which I emphasize we should call natural contemplation, since it doesn't require anything of God, makes no appeal to God 
or the gods whatsoever. In Christianity, however, we have something somewhat different. We have what we call infused contemplation. Infused contemplation means it is given to us in and through grace. Now, this word infusion is an interesting one in theology, and I'll speak about it just very briefly. Um, we're probably all familiar, if we're Catholic, with the idea of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. These are infused in us uh, with baptism. But they're not the only infused virtues that we have. With confirmation, we have all of our moral virtues are infused also. That's to say they're, um, they're given extra powers, as it were, by God with confirmation. And thereafter, we gain, as Aquinas uh, talks about very well, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So roughly by the time we are confirmed as Catholics, we've been given many opportunities through the theological virtues, which we may develop, through the infused virtues and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit to engage in the contemplation of God. Notice that what's happened from the pagan movement, the pagan understanding of contemplation to the Christian one, is that contemplation requires a spiritual transformation of us before we can contemplate God. Pagan contemplation requires the intellect, or as we would say, the understanding. Christian contemplation requires the will as well as the intellect because in the will there abides charity or love. And on the Christian, particularly the Catholic idea of contemplation, the love of God is absolutely essential for any contemplation of God, even if that contemplation of God ends up being intellectual as it is for Aquinas. So let me emphasize once again, since it can't be emphasized too often, what happens in the Christian notion of contemplation is that it's concerned with the relationship of human beings and God. That means there is a humility of the contemplating gaze. It's not something that we have of our own that we can aim at God. It must be enhanced by the relationship with God before we can contemplate God. And this is a dramatic difference from that of Greek and Roman ideas of contemplation. So that's the second thing that I wanted to talk about. Now that we very briefly, and I do emphasize briefly, uh, said something about imagination and about contemplation, the next thing we should think about, I suppose, is how to put these two things together. What then of contemplation and the imagination? Well, roughly, there are three possibilities. We can talk about contemplating God in and through scripture. If we do that, of course, we're concerned with all manner of images because the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament are simply packed with images and they call forth our imagination and the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures 
allows, as the church teaches, uh, for the Holy Spirit to condescend so that the biblical authors write in terms of their own language, their concepts and their imaginations. We can also think of God as God is made manifest in nature. And as soon as we do that, we're involved in images as well. You look at the beauty of nature anywhere in the world, and what you find is a whole bunch of images. So, so far, it looks like contemplation and the imagination are linked pretty closely. We can also try to think of God as God is in himself. Contemplate God as God is in God's self. Do we require images here? Well, this is a vexed question. We might say yes, because as Thomas says, uh, the path to God is Jesus of Nazareth. And to the extent to which we take Jesus of Nazareth as the road along which we walk in our journey toward God, then we are concerned with images of the humanity of Jesus, whether it be in stories in the gospels um, or in talk about Jesus by Paul in the, in the Catholic epistles, or whether we're talking about icons. The question comes up inevitably at this stage, must God be the sole object of contemplation? Now, this is an ancient question. It was an ancient question, uh, as to say it was used, it was posed by the Greeks and by the Romans. But it's become, in recent years, a very modern question as well. There are certain things that we might consider based upon what we've said. The first is, can we contemplate scripture? Can we read scripture in a contemplative mode? Well, the prima facie answer would seem to be yes. And in fact, the church enjoins something of this. Can we extend this and say, can we contemplate literature or poetry? Well, there seems to be no reason why not if one is actually suspending the idea of God as the proper object of contemplation. Can one contemplate landscape rather than God? Well, this has been something which has been endorsed by certain people in the Christian tradition and certain people in the secular world. Indeed, the very notion, the romantic notion of the sublime seems to be a category that invites contemplation. So when we're reading Wordsworth or Shelley or Keats, for example, or Wallace Stevens in the United States, we are invited to contemplate nature by way of the sublime. Some of you, for all I know, might well be studying mathematics or theoretical physics. And of course, if we're studying mathematics at a fairly advanced level, not just learning logarithms and doing Euclidean geometry, then we are engaged for a long time in the contemplation of those mathematical objects, which are abstract. So it looks prima facie as though it's possible to engage in contemplation of things other than God. The important point is, that those things are all going to be finite. God, however, is 
infinite in the metaphysical sense of infinite. So the contemplation of God is utterly inexhaustible. And that's why for Aquinas, as well as others, God is the proper object of our contemplation. He's inexhaustible. Well, that was the third point. There are, we might say, a whole bunch of modes of contemplation with respect to God that we might consider. And I'm going to just give you a very brief account of the main ones in the Christian, especially the Catholic tradition. The first is what we might call ascending contemplation. That's to say that we approach God beginning with nature. And we then pass from nature, namely our images of nature, to that which generally is, doesn't have a, an image, to say reason. And we pass from reason to understanding. Always in Christian theology, we're aiming for the understanding, not to reason about God so much as to find a point where the reason settles down into a moment of understanding. Aquinas says this beautifully in his account of um, account of understanding in his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, where he says that God is the principium and that all of our uh, relations with God are resolved finally into the original principium. And that is when we gain certitude about God. So he doesn't think there's such a thing as, uh, as an ontological argument that's successful. He thinks there are certain uh, arguments for the existence of God, which take us part of the way. But what is really going to give us certitude in our lives is the idea of God as the principium, which our intuitions of God finally resolve into that principium and we gain certitude. Okay, the idea of ascending to God is a very old one. Uh, ascent is in his heart as the psalmist says, but it also occurs in Greek philosophy, particularly in Plato, if you've read any Plato. Um, think of the symposium, for instance, where we ascend by a way of human beauty to the beauty of the forms, which early Christians took up as the beauty of God. One way in which this is developed is in the 12th century in France, at the great abbey of St. Victor, which was one of the most intriguing and, uh, and uh, vital centers of theological reflection in France in the 12th century. Richard of St. Victor, who was probably a Scotsman or from the north of England, wrote a remarkable work on this uh, called The Mystical Ark, in which he argued that one can contemplate absolutely anything at all. This is a very radical teaching. One can contemplate anything at all. That's to say, one can contemplate as one's going on a hike, a leaf. 
And if one contemplates it, attends to it with care, then one is led ineluctably towards the sense of order in the leaf and to the idea of the one who has ordered everything in the leaf, namely the creator. And one is led further up the hierarchy of being until one reaches the Trinity. So what we get in Richard's view is an ascending mode of contemplation. Notice that it begins with the imagination understood in the 12th century sense of the making of images, which we can abstract to find reasons, concepts, and then we can understand them. So in this idea of contemplation, everything begins with images. Nothing is forbidden us to contemplate. Even if it is something awful, we can contemplate it and still find our way to God through certain negations. Now, one person who didn't like this idea one little bit is of course Aquinas. And if you look at question 180 and thereabouts of the, of the second part of the Summa, you find Aquinas, when he's developing his own account of contemplation, is always taking Richard of St. Victor to task in his usual gentle and thorough manner. Aquinas as a Dominican is very concerned, not with an ascending notion of contemplation, but with what we could call an intellective account of contemplation. Now, I should say something to prepare us for this word intellective. It certainly shouldn't mean, be taken to mean what we would call intellectual, let alone intellectualist or anything like that. For Thomas, as for most Christian writers, in order for us to have any contemplation of God, we must use both the will and the intellect. And a movement of the will must precede a movement of the intellect. That's to say, we must try to engage God through our love before we can understand him. You cannot attempt to contemplate God in a neutral manner. Now notice that love here for Aquinas, as for the tradition generally, is not an emotion as it often is regarded in 21st century America. When we say of our husbands or our wives, friends, family, we often say, I love you. And we mean by that, there's a certain sort of emotion which is conscious to us. That's not how it means for Aquinas and for the tradition in general, certainly not for Augustine. It means rather that the will has been moved in a particular way. And the idea is for the will and the intellect to be in one or another form of harmony. Now, pretty much everyone who writes on contemplation will agree with this, that the will and the intellect have to be in harmony. The differences are the manner in which they're in harmony. Now for Thomas, contemplation results, if it's successful, in a simple, immediate, intellective intuition of God. Notice then, it's simple and immediate. It's not discursive. 
It doesn't have a particular history to it as it has for Richard of St. Victor. For Richard, I might be able to go into the woods and look at trees, look at leaves, look at animals, all the beauty of the world, and slowly ascend over the course of my life through abstractions to contemplate the Holy Trinity. Not so for Thomas. Rather, if I devote my life to the contemplation of God, say, becoming a Cistercian or a Carthusian, there may be one moment in my life, and only one, where I have a simple insight into God. And that means my entire life has been contemplative. Now, of course, in that life, I would have attended mass every day. I would have engaged in various sorts of prayer, including meditation. I would have done various other works. However, following Aristotle in Book 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aquinas says that it takes one moment to determine the course of an entire life. So one immediate intuition of a simple kind of God's reality will make an entire life of a monk a contemplative life. Really quite an interesting view. And it's utterly, utterly contrary to that of Richard of St. Victor. Now, the third way in which we might talk about contemplation, which is very common, is that of the effective contemplation or effective mysticism. That's to say where the person, male or female, has such desire for Christ that it's almost overcoming as with mortal love. And the great text for this is, of course, the canticle, the Song of Songs. So you find people like um, Gerson or Angelo Fellino or Richard Methley, all of whom think of the soul, male or female, as um, female, because it is in Greek and Latin and in Mobens languages generally, as being in the position of the bride being married to the bridegroom, who is Christ. And this kind of bridal mysticism, as it becomes known, is taken up by John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and by others in the Counter-Reformation. In fact, it flourishes, I would say, in John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. So we have roughly three distinct ways in which one can contemplate, the ascending, the intellective, and the effective. One of the things which is of interest, I suppose, to people who are, um, who are concerned with contemplation and mysticism in the 21st century is how thoroughly the sheer prestige of Thomas has occluded the other views. Aquinas set himself to um, argue against Richard of St. Victor's views, and then the prestige of Thomas from Eterno Patris to Fides et Ratio to important encyclicals has pretty much occluded uh, effective mysticism too, apart from in literary studies. This doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't very good things to be found in ascending an effective contemplation, quite the opposite. There's many good things. 
You'd have noticed though, I'm sure by now, that only ascending mysticism or contemplation and effective contemplation involve the imagination to any extent. Ascending contemplation, because everything starts with images of the natural world. Effective contemplation, because the person contemplating will use images, especially from the life of Jesus, particularly the most affecting images, such as those to do with the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus. If you read the texts of effective mysticism, again, male or female, you will find the person trying vividly to imagine embracing Christ upon the cross and becoming covered with the blood of Jesus and other things like that, which are generally not to the taste of 21st century Catholics. However, the, the writing is often extremely intense and well worth um, our consideration. For Aquinas, although he had a great devotion to the cross, the image is restricted to the activity of what he calls consideratio or meditatio. That's to say, image is important, but at a much lower level spiritually than contemplation. When we're reading the scriptures, we're engaged in consideratio or meditatio. When we're in the heights of contemplating the being of God, then we're way above images. Okay, this brings us to the fifth part of what I want to say today, which is how to contemplate. Now, I'm not gonna talk about how to do it in a practical sense, that's an entirely different talk, one that I, I've given to various parishes around the area and will happily do so again, namely how to begin to do contemplative prayer. But I just want to tell you about two examples of contemplation. One is what one I'm sure you're all familiar with called Lectio Divina, about which I'll say something more in a moment. And the other is what I will call mental prayer because that was the expression Teresa of Avila gave it. Mental prayer is when we break away from our day and take 15, 20 minutes without much preparation in order to raise the mind to God in solitude. Mental prayer in its original state presumes a roughly monastic context, that one is already in a life of prayer already deeply devoted to the Eucharist, engaging in frequent confession, engaging in a range of prayer already and under discipline. So it is not such a large, and has a spiritual director, of course. So it is not a large leap in order to engage in mental prayer. In the ordinary secular modern world, it is a leap to engage in, and a very difficult one to make. So I wanted to spend more time on what is something anyone can practice, and that's Lectio Divina, or sacred, sacred reading, or divine reading. Lectio Divina is a very old practice of the church. Um, we find Gregory the Great commending it 
in the sixth century. And it was practiced well up through the 11th, 12th century. Um, it becomes formalized to a great extent by Guido II, the great Carthusian, the founder of the, um, the second founder of the Carthusians. And according to Guido, it has four steps. There are variations of this model, but this is the main one. The first step is lectio or reading. The second is meditatio, meditation. The third oratio or prayer. And the fourth, contemplatio, contemplation. So in lectio, as I'm sure many of you know, one starts with a very few verses of scripture, three, four, five, maybe at the outside. And one reads them carefully with consideration, makes sense of them grammatically, rhetorically, and so on. This is what's called lectio, a grammatical and clear understanding of what is being said. Then almost seamlessly one passes to meditatio, where one regurgitates, as the medievals would often say, the meaning of the text, referring it to other parts of scripture, perhaps to other church fathers, to what various saints have said about something. One chews on the words of scripture. Having done this, one then passes importantly to oratio or prayer. One prays over what one has been reading. One allows that reading to lift one up into prayer where one personalizes what one has been reading so that it affects one as an individual. How is it that I, as an individual, cross this ancient text and what the church fathers have said about it? How do I benefit from doing this? What is it that it exposes as wanting in me? All of this is offered up to God in prayer. Having been brought into the presence of God, not only by scripture, but also by prayer, one is then able in time, certainly not immediately, to engage in contemplatio. That's to say the suspension, the loving suspension of the self before God. If we think about it, what we do in Lectio is we begin with images, with the Lectio and the Meditatio, and usually with the Oratio as well. More often than not, especially if we're doing Lectio with the Hebrew scriptures, we're basing it on poetry. We meditate with respect to images, images from the Hebrew scriptures, images from the life of Jesus, or from what Paul tells us of the gospel. And when we pray, we pray, I want to suggest, according to the new concepts and the new rules that are produced by Christianity, patristic, medieval, and for us now, modern. We begin in prayer, freshly to understand what it means to be human. And what we know 
to be human is, is rather different from what the pagans understood it to be. To be human is to be in relationship with God. To be in an unbroken relationship with God as to say in a state of grace with God where we can grow and be free. But there is an image important here that we often don't recognize. The transcendental aspect of the Christian mind of this productive imagination in a Christian register is the Imago Dei, the image of God to whom we are made. Notice then what I'm doing, rather boldly perhaps, is I'm taking the secular philosophical notion of the productive imagination from Kant and pointing out that it has a Christian resonance of a rather different kind, but that the productive imagination for the Christian presupposes transcendentally, as to say it's before any and all experience, the image of God. Why does it precede experience? Because from the very moment of our conception, we are made in the image of God. You don't have to get very far in Genesis to read about this. Of course, you don't find out much more about it um, in, the, in the scriptures, just a little in the Psalms. So our prayer is to do with the imagination too, the productive imagination in a specific Christian key animated by the Imago Dei. Contemplation is the free suspension before God in the love of him. This is not the pagan idea where we take in the object of contemplation in a free attentive gaze. Rather the Christian notion is that there is a crossing of gazes. It is always God who has gazed in love at us before we return the gaze. We're always belated in our relationship with God. God gazes upon us, we return the gaze, and our act of contemplation, the two minutes, three minutes, by the time you become a saint, maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes, there is a crossing of the gazes. And it's that crossing of the gazes which holds the soul aloft freely before God. Okay, to conclude, I want to conclude by suggesting a kind of analogy with poetry. This is the, would be a very modern sense of the imagination understood as uh, the creative powers of the human being by analogy with God's creative powers. But my remarks will be trying to find a secular parallel, a secular analogy. So Lectio is concerned with reading scripture particularly with reading poetry, so much of the scriptures are poetic. But imagine we're reading a secular poem. Imagine you're an English major or an English minor at the University of Virginia or somewhere else. What do we do when we're reading a poem? Well, I want to suggest that it's quite like Lectio Divina in a certain way. We read the poem. We consider the semantics, the syntax, the figures, the tropes, and so forth. If we don't know a word, we don't know an expression, we look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary or something like that, or the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics. We then almost invisibly pass to a meditation on the poem, 
That's to say, we start relating it to other poems and works of criticism that we've read. You read poem X, and it reminds you of something in poem Y. And for a period, we engage with this kind of meditation, exactly as we do in Lectio Divina. Is there an analogy to prayer? Well, a weak one, a very weak one. This is when we engage in verbal discussion with someone who knows more about it, supposedly a professor. Now, I'm not suggesting the professors are like God, although some of my colleagues may well think that they are. Rather, it is that the discussions with a professor or with students at TA is something like what we do in prayer. Then after we've gone through these stages, I think what we do, if we are free to do so, is we engage in a non-reductive exposure to all the ways in which a poem gives us. That's to say by way of anticipation, recollection, by way of the different modes of being, human being, animal being, spiritual being, moral being, and so on. What we find if we don't close off our contemplation is that the strong poems, the poems that truly move us and that we live with for decades, are ones which engage all of the regions of being, nature and culture and spirit. When we do this, it seems to me, we're not engaging in anything like the allegorical human, uh, hermeneutic such as we found in Origin or Didymus the Blind, nor are we engaging what is much more common in universities today, namely the hermeneutics of suspicion, where we use Marx or Freud or Nietzsche to try to dig down beneath the surface of the text to find a mode of production that's been hidden by capitalism or a will to power, which Christianity has occluded, or a superego, which has been repressing our desire. This, these are techniques which we're very familiar with in the humanities in universities and colleges in the United States. And it's a specular version of the allegorical hermeneutic of the early years of Christianity. What I'm proposing, what I call the hermeneutics of contemplation is neither of those things. It is rather the free open exposure to all of the various modes of being, natural, cultural, and spiritual, insofar as they settle down within the text of a poem. What I think we find in the hermeneutics of suspicion is fascination. And if I'm correct, the contrary of fascination in our society is contemplation. When we're fascinated by something, we're held by it. We can't get away from it. And it's largely visual. Zoom is a good example of it, the fascination of Zoom, which I hope we will all be free of uh, very soon. Contemplation is not like that at all. Contemplation is much more like the loving standing or floating before another person, in this case, usually God, which can be ended by either party and is rather difficult to sustain because it re requires an enormous openness of love to keep it going. Fascination 
is when we're driving around the road and we see a car wreck and we slow down to see if anyone is injured. Fascination is usually controlled by some image of death or violence or something of the sort. Our society is one of fascination, it seems to me. The dominant mode of it is fascination. But Christianity is rather different. Christianity enjoins us to seek an alternate value, namely that of contemplation. And I think that contemplation can occur not only in the religious sphere, as to say in Holy Scripture and the Mass, for example, but also in a large number of secular writings. That is that takes me to the end of my talk that is fitted in quite nicely into, I think, 45 minutes. So thank you very much for your attention. And I'm happy to take any questions if I can answer them. The first question kind of is something you touched on, like having discussed contemplation and the imagination, how would mysticism relate to these, especially considering the difference between the Dominican and the Carmelite traditions and understandings of mysticism? Okay. Um, Lots of the religious orders have got slightly different understandings of what's called mysticism. The main thing I'd want to say first is that this word mysticism is a fairly modern one in the history of theology. It enters um, English and French and, and, and German towards the end of the 19th century and became dominant in the early 20th century with uh, Evelyn Underhill and various other people popularizing it. This was the heyday of psychology. And a good deal of what has been called mysticism is to do with peculiar psychological states, which is understood that people in, in um, episodes of deep prayer or um, enjoying the graces of God undertake. The old word for what we call mysticism is contemplatio. So I've been talking about mysticism all along, but using a slightly different word. The word mysticism comes from mystical theology, which is a, a noble branch of theology, um, especially, as, especially as developed by Pseudo-Dionysius Theriopagite and developed in Greek theology as well as in Latin theology. So the important thing is, I think, you know, not all of us will be mystics in the sense that we will levitate to take a very straightforward instance. We won't become people who are given extraordinary graces by God, by and large. However, each of us, as Thomas says, is called to contemplate God. Um, each of us is quite capable of contemplating God and receiving infused virtues. And in fact, Aquinas says that even those who are called to the active life, as most of us are, either to the active life or the mixed life, we're still called to contemplate God. And he refers us to the Sabbath as a day for being still, attending to mass and contemplating God. So he says there can be no salvation without contemplation. He doesn't say there's no salvation unless you levitate or anything like that. That is way, way beyond most, um, most believers. Hi. Um, so thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering about uh, how, so with, with the um, ascending contemplation of uh, Richard of St. Victor, it's 
clear to me how he starts the process, how one would start contemplating uh, by, you know, looking at nature and you can contemplate everything. So how would um, contemplation begin on Aquinas's model? Because you said it has to be predicated on various things before it can start happening. Yeah, the, the, the highest form of contemplation for Aquinas, of course, involves rapture, which is a mode of death. Your mom, the, the spirit is momentarily detached from the body. So it is a form of mystical death, as he says. Um, the people who, to whom this happens are those in the contemplative orders, like the Carthusians and the Cistercians, um, uh, the Carmelites to some extent, uh, and also, of course, Dominicans. One must devote oneself strongly to the contemplative life of study and of prayer. Now, the Dominicans, as Aquinas says, live a mixed life. That's to say, you contemplate, you study and pray, and you give in preaching back what you've learned. For the average person, let's say, the, let's imagine the average Carthusian, what a wonderful notion, the average Carthusian. The average Carthusian is praying for 14 to 15 hours a day. Mass, the office, private prayer, is engaging in the life of the community. Everything that person does is ordered to God. The person is engaging in mental prayer for part of that day with the deep context of liturgical prayer and meditation behind him. So if that person engages in mental prayer and for one moment, it so happens that God gives that Carthusian the grace to have a simple intellective intuition of him, then that person has led a contemplative life. We don't know if that happens to each and every person, but for Aquinas, everything is teleological ordered to the highest point. And, and that is the highest point for those contemplative orders. Now Aquinas thinks the mixed life is better than the contemplative life. Namely being a Dominican is better than being a Carthusian. That's because one has all of that study, all of that prayer, and still every Sunday, as it were, gets up and preaches and, and gives people what the fruit of what they've been learning intellectually and spiritually. So that, that's one difference. I have a question off that one where I've heard a lot of the Dominican understanding of contemplation being as received as a gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift of understanding, yeah. and uh, how that would be described. So if we all receive the gifts at confirmation, it would be that that would come at some point, depending on your openness and disposition towards them, correct? Yes, well, you, you have to, the virtues are like muscles, you must use them for them to work. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the theological virtues and then the infused virtues, you, you must engage in the intellectual and moral virtues. Um, they are what prepare us for the contemplative life. Namely, one can't live a life which is disordered and expect to be able to contemplate God. One must live a life which is ordered by um, the sacramental system and prayer in order to be able to contemplate God. And 
as I emphasized before, it's something, it's not an option for the Christian, according to Thomas. One must do it. But one, it, people call to the active life uh, are required to do it, as it were, only one day a week, to take the rest on Sunday in order to contemplate God. Uh, I wanted to understand a little bit more clearly the, uh, the contrast between the hermeneutics of suspicion and the hermeneutics of contemplation. Yep. Okay. Well, um, let's go back one step. In the early church, and indeed in um, Judaism, about the time of uh, St. Paul, one of the dominant ways of interpreting scripture was by allegory. That's to say, one ascended to God by higher spiritual interpretations, let's say. Now, what you find in modernity after Marx and Freud and Nietzsche, the three great hermeneutes of suspicion, as Paul Ricoeur calls them, is that rather than ascending above the surface of the text to get to God, one digs down beneath the text to find some secret, hidden, occluded meaning, namely something that Christianity, for Nietzsche, has occluded, namely the will to power, or something that capitalism has occluded, for Marx, namely the mode of production, which must be seized by the workers, or indeed uh, something that the superego has occluded, namely our sexual desires, which are marked in the text. So one of the most characteristic ways in which undergraduates are taught to read texts in the United States these days is to find, is to be suspicious of the meaning on the surface of the text and find the true meaning of the text in some form of oppression or suppression. Once one's found it, whether it be according to Marxist or feminist or Nietzschean or Freudian principles, it hardly matters, then one has found the meaning of the text, but it is hidden underneath the text. What I propose rather is a view which certainly accords with some of the things in the hermeneutics of suspicion, because sometimes it's very valuable. Sometimes this tells us rather a lot about a text. But the, the hermeneutics of contemplation is not reductive. It doesn't seek to ascend, according to a model, or descend. Rather, it takes all of the possible modes of being, natural, cultural, and spiritual, and sees how they settle down. That the text is never a totality which we can end. It's always open to meanings. But after a while in reading them, you find what the meanings generally are. They can differ from generation to generation, from decade to decade, but one becomes open to a wider range of meanings that one can contemplate. Now, I might add, by way, but simply by way of a curlicue to that answer, this differs in its practice in the secular world, as I would imagine it, and for a Christian reading. For a Christian reading, any text is going to be partly dialogical because it will involve God. Not always for a secular person reading the text. For a Christian, there is no way in which one can have a simple contemplative gaze. It's always going to be a relationship with God. <laughs> 